welcome to the Back in Business podcast. I'm business journalist, broadcaster and podcaster, Mickey Clark. And I'm small business journalist, Liz Barkley, his sidekick. And we're talking about business debt today. There's a new report out today and Matt Hartley is here from the charity to paint the picture for us. But of course, it's been we've had a week since the last podcast. Yes, exactly. And a lot has happened since then. A lot has disappeared. Um, <laughs> not necessarily the debts, of course. It's been a week when debt laden big business finally went under. The lights went out in many well-known high street stores. The Arcadia Group, Wallace, Dorothy Perkins, Topshop and Debenhams, of course, too, to name just two the groups that are in trouble. Was, is, Debenhams was in big, big trouble before. So presumably the were. fact that they that they carried so many of those concessions that you've just mentioned has yeah, tipped it, them over. It was disingenuous to actually listen to these companies and say it was COVID-19 what done it um, because they were in trouble before. I mean, this is the second, maybe even the third time that Debenhams has gone into administration. Um, it's the second time that I know of at least one other that's gone into administration. And as for Arcadia, um, you know, the debt's there. It's, it's the same old story. You've only got to look at BHS, which it also used to own, to realise what's gone wrong there. So, you know, the, the, the billionaire Philip, Sir Philip Green, um, perhaps not a billionaire now. Well, Shame. Presumably, presumably his uh, personal finances have, have been uh, somewhat reduced by this. And of course, there is. I'm sure he's a had rumor. a few sleepless nights on his yacht out in the uh, Mediterranean <laughs> there. Uh, there is a rumour that he is going to put some money into the pension fund. But there are an awful lot of people tied up in these administrations at the moment thinking about a Christmas that was ravaged by COVID in the first place and is now just going to be completely annihilated by uncertainty about jobs. And have, have you always noticed that when the big job losses come from the big companies, it's always just before Christmas, you know, to make everyone's Christmas and New Year go with that special zing um I, 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 my heart goes out to what twenty five thousand workers at those two businesses 27 27 because don't forget bon marche went this week as well well yeah if you include bon marche which you know is another one the second administration that has gone into um and you know it, it had its problems but this is the direct lot job losses from those businesses folding you you get the you start sucking in um, the ancillary businesses, the suppliers, the service companies, the actual score is probably going to be a lot higher than 27,000. But you, I think we've lost something like 158,000 already in retail, haven't we? So this yeah, has just yeah. added to that figure. But the, the, in my head, I can see all these big Debenham stores sitting on corners of streets that will now add to the empty properties on high streets. Now, a lot of those department stores have been struggling for a while, but at the same time, they've brought people into high streets and they've kind of helped to keep the high street alive. At what point does the high street just collapse? I, I, I think to a certain extent it already has. I mean, if you go into any major town now, your acid test is to walk down the high street, wherever it happens to be, and count how many charity shops are on that high street. Um, and in some instances, they outnumber the, the you know, the, the formal stores, if you like. And I, I think that's the problem. And then you get re, you know, consumers saying, well, why, why would I bother going there? I might as well go to an out of town shopping centre, which has its own problems. You know, they're not free. I remember interviewing the chief executive of Into um, just a, a, two or three years ago. You know, they own 
Manchester, Newcastle, um, in Essex down there. And no, retail is not a problem. If, if BHS, when they went bust, we, we filled that space very quickly. We're immune. Well, they ain't now. They're another one but, against you know, the wall. But Mickey, when, when you and I were working back at the BBC, um, the travel agents were going through all of this. And I was remember quite clearly saying, but hang on a minute, people are booking online. Where yeah. is the future for you? Oh, we're immune. Um, no. Hasn't They're the retail immune. sector learned anything from what's Clearly not. previously? Clearly not. I mean, companies like you know Arcadia are laden with debt and they've not invested in the things they should do, which is online sales. Um, you know, at least some of them. If you look at Next, for instance, all right, Next is struggling, but it's still surviving. And it knows that its online sales business is just as important, if not more so, than physical stores. The two have got to run together. One has got to complement the other. You look at uh, Primark. What's Primark losing each now? £500 million a month in lost sales? It says it all. If you haven't got the ability to invest and move into other areas, you're dead in this world. And what's more important is that companies like Arcadia, uh, and I'm no fashion expert, lost sight of who their customers were. <laughs> well, you can, can tell, can't you? That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad Pitt of financial journalism. You're, you're more of a millet's man, I always thought. <laughs> well, Declan, I wear whatever De Carol buys me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame her. Uh, no, I'll have to have a word with her. <laughs> uh, Declan, Declan, you and I talked to the chair of the Business, the Energy and Industrial Strategy Select Committee, Darren Jones, this week, and he's worried about all of this stuff. It's hardly yeah, surprising. And he, and he made the point that Mickey made, uh, which is that coronavirus was only the last straw, that for a lot of these names on the high street, they had been in trouble for some time. Uh, and he and his committee, the, the business uh, committee, are thinking about whether they need to have a hearing on the future of the high street and whether they need to have hearings into Arcadia and the conduct of Philip Green and other directors uh, in that business. We'll watch that with interest for development. But his fundamental point is you can't blame coronavirus for all this because there are other problems on the high street. And I, I agree with Mickey in this regard. This big story behind Arcadia and Debenhams, which really didn't get told this week because the obvious story of the job losses was itself so terrible and the story of the pensions is so important that it needs pursuing but the underlying story is debt and financing and how these companies were loaded up with debts over the last 20 years how they were used as a piggy bank to pay for other things and the influence of private equity investment in buying these companies, stripping their assets, selling off anything that wasn't nailed down to the floor and then taking off with the proceeds rather than doing what Next has done, which is invest year after year after year in improving the online operation and in redeveloping the stores as an adjunct of what is now an online business. And retailers that didn't invest in this continuously are finding out it's too late. There's too big a job to be done and too little time available in which to do it. But Declan, I remember um, two or three Christmases ago going into Debenhams for the first time in a long time and being utterly shocked because the floors were cracked, the tiles were cracked, there was yellow and black tape 
across the floors at places where there were trip hazards. And in the, <laughs> I'll never forget this, but in the changing room, there was a ball of hair and fluff so big that it looked like one of those uh, straw bales that you see, uh, you know, blowing down the street in a Western movie. Wasn't mine. Wasn't mine. <laughs> Hasn't been yours for some time. Not, not for the first time, Liz Barkley. One of your stories has disgusted me. <laughs> no, but it was absolutely disgusting. And as a customer, I didn't ever go back. So the why have the customers the... gone back? BHS was exactly the same. Yeah, you know, and BHS was an alternative MS at one stage. My mother used to go there to get the knickers, basically, because they were good quality. But, you know, in, in latter years, no one used BHS. And, you'd, and once you'd bought the knickers, you'd stop in there for a nice cream bun yeah, and a French fancy yeah, in the cafe, it, yeah. because the cafe in BHS was one of the best on the high yeah. street in the days when they invested money in this as well. It's the same problem. They didn't invest in keeping. Uh, keeping the stores looking decent, never mind retail theatre and retail experience, which the big players like Selfridges have been sort of writing the Bible on for years and years. If you're not spending money on keeping the, replacing the grouting and the tiles on the floor, then that's a clear signal to you that there's too much money going out of the business into the pockets of investors or paying off debt and that the business is collapsing under the weight of its financial engineer. Um, if, you've, if you've never listened to this podcast before, I can tell you that we have the same level of passion and enthusiasm about business every week. So please do keep tuning in. That's uh, Declan Curry, our business editor, about to give and, himself and, a hernia. <laughs> and, and Liz, just to say, the, 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 the importance of investment is only going to increase because retail is going to be a business where the critical factors of success are data, how much you capture and how well you use it, and logistics, how you get stuff to your customers. If you're not investing in that, and they're expensive things to get right, then none of it is going to work. And that's why all eyes are focused on Marks and Spencer at the moment. They've done this deal with Ocado. I'm not quite sure the rationale of it, because you don't go to Marks and Spencer for everyday food. But the fact is they're, they're attempting to get their stuff from the stores to the front door. I just hope Marks and Spencer hasn't left its investment too late because it will be looking at this and learning. Let's hope it's, you know, they, they're learning enough and they've learned on time. That always you felt may... like a reverse takeover to me, Mickey, that uh, well, Ocado is yeah. going to come out of this with the whip hand. Mm. You may uh, also be wondering what this has got to do with small business and freelancers, but Declan, as you and I said to uh, Darren Jones on Wednesday, it's got everything to do with small business because the suppliers, you've got the suppliers in the chain. And as the chain, you go further down the chain, they get smaller. Uh, you've got freelancers contracted to work for these big businesses. Everybody is a Carillion type situation yeah. where everybody and, and, right, and, and, right down to the little cafe owner uh, is affected yeah and who's driving that delivery van that takes the three and a half mile road up the uh, private lawn of uh, mickey clark uh, it is likely to be a small local delivery logistics firm he hasn't got a lawn it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a field i can tell you simon <laughs> simon mcvicker our director of public affairs policy and communications is waiting patiently he uh, hasn't got a lawn <laughs> the not in his no he no he hasn't got a lawn now. <laughs> <laughs> oh simon what yeah. kind of a week have you had <laughs> uh well it wasn't 
many surprises this week in as much the uh, government won its uh, vote in the House of Commons on moving from the lockdown to the different tiers across the country. But what a price they paid for it. Um, they had a huge rebellion. Um, over 50 MPs um, voted against and some more abstained, including Theresa May and people like that. And Labour abstained. So that meant that uh, they got the thing through, but it was a perfect victory because if Labour had a, voted with the opposition within the Tory party, they would have lost. And I think Labour have put the government on a warning, really, that, that this is not going to be their position. When in doubt, do now. Yeah. So um, I, I suppose he's, uh, Boris is... Um, Happy he got it through, but he's going to have to make concessions, especially if he finds that he's under extreme pressure from the medical world to um, toughen things up after Christmas. That's going to be a very tough vote if that comes about. And that's likely to happen, is it not? I well, there's mixed people mixed. I mean, you know, the R rate is going down in, in many parts of the country. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we have to wait and see. Um, but the government, I think, is now getting more and more conscious of the sort of economic catastrophe that's happening out there. And these retail things really bring it home to, 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 to people because, you know, they're everyday stores. And, I, you know, and backbench Tory MPs are really, really worried about this. And will the government continue with the straight lockdown, I just don't know. What else well, can they we, do? I mean, they're not coming up with any alternative suggestions. They're saying, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. If I was in charge, I wouldn't do this. But they're well, there not are, saying there are what our policy should be. There are. You know, we need, we need guidance. There are alternative suggestions. But up until this point, the government has gone with the medical experts because I think they're scared. Um, especially Boris, you know, who, who has had the COVID uh, virus, uh, I think he's scared to do something that will end up in uh, thousands of people ending up in a hospital. But, you know, they're looking now at millions of people on the dole in 2021. And um, the economy is going to be in such bad shape that it won't be back to normal by the next general election. Which brings us very neatly to Matt Hartley, who is from Money Advice Trust. But the Money Advice Trust also runs business deadline and national deadline. And Matt, you have a new report out um, today, but actually you just told me uh, earlier that it's tomorrow. So I'm sorry if we've jumped the gun ever so slightly. Um, and you also have a lot of figures as to what has been happening. Just how deep in trouble are we? debt-wise as small businesses and freelancers? Well, I'm afraid that the bad news continues. You know, 2020 has been full of it, and I hate to add to more, but it's really important that uh, we feel that people understand the severity of the situation facing uh, the, the small business owners we help. So, as you know, Liz, business deadline uh, is it's only, uh, there's only sort of one service like it in the country. Uh, it's a dedicated free advice service for self-employed people and other small business owners. Last year, we helped 50,000 uh, small business owners. Um, and that was, of course, before. And that's the dog. You promised, Liz, you said there'd be one dog per podcast. And 
I've, I've, I've ticked the box for you, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, um, that's fine. That's, that's terrific. We cannot have a podcast without a dog. Yeah, it's a delivery <laughs> driver. He couldn't find my drive, but he's found Matt's. Yeah, but my, my, my two-year-old Cocker Spaniel has developed very strong views over whatever topic I happen to be talking about during this year. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, last year, 50,000 uh, people uh, were helped at business deadline. And that was before the, the very specific, very particular impact that the pandemic has had. And as you say, Liz, we've, we've got research out this week um, on, on, on that impact. And, uh, you know, very happy to share, share some of that. And it really looked at three things. First of all, you know, what's the impact been? Uh, how have people been able to access support? And what's happened to those who haven't been able to access support? And what uh, small businesses are telling us about their future prospects? So we, we polled 2,500 uh, self-employed people um, and on the impact, it's really um, a very, very grim picture indeed. So 29% uh, told us they've fallen behind on one or more bills as a direct result of COVID. Uh, the average debt accrued uh, due to COVID was um, £3,400. And this is a new, often uh, includes a new cohort of people, one in six people who hadn't experienced any debt problems before COVID have newly fallen behind this year. And what's really, uh, really key for policymakers to understand is that it's household finances that are bearing the brunt of this, not the business finances. We all know there is often no difference that personal and business finances are intertwined. So twice as many self-employed people that we polled had fallen behind with household bills as they had with their business bills. So it's the family finances that are bearing the brunt of this. So it's a grim picture. I was actually talking to the Small Business Commissioner the other day, and he said that at one point, one of the small businesses that came to them didn't have enough money to put food on the table um, for the weekend, that particular weekend. So there was an outstanding invoice, hadn't been paid on time, but it was the family budget because they tried to divert just about everything to keep the business afloat. Because if you don't have a business, you don't pay the family bills either. Um, and it was only in the nick of time that he managed to get that money paid that allowed that family to put food on the table. This is horrendous stuff. It is, and, and the late payments are such a big part of it. And the Small Business Commission is doing a fantastic job with the resources, resources the office has. And one of the things we're, we're saying in this report is actually we need to have more powers for the Small Business Commissioner to do more to tackle late payments. So in our, in our new poll, um, more than a third of uh, self-employed people we surveyed said they've had an increase in late payments since the start of the outbreak. And that probably, you know, to lots of listeners will, will sound obvious. You know, it, it is a fact of life for small businesses anyway. And when things get tough, late payments get more of a problem. Um, but, you know, in three quarters of cases, late payments are having a serious impact on, on businesses' uh, ability to recover. So Matt, it's such, I, a, I, such a big part of the problem. Matt, De Declan and I worked on Wake Up to Money. I, I, I started when the programme started, which would have been March 1994. And one of the first stories we ever did was on late payments. And we're still talking about it in 2020, 20, 26 years later. I think I can top that, Mickey. I read that the first time it was raised sort of nationally as a national policy issue 
was under the government of David Lloyd George. It's a it's a one hundred yeah. year old policy issue. It's very frustrating. Indeed. And it's it's it, it it was a business practice not so many years ago under people like Lord Weinstock, who was GECAEI, he would be happy to supply a company, you know, say, come and supply me so many widgets and I'll pay you this and you'd get on and then you'd be sucked in. He would be, you know, you'd put all your eggs in one basket, you would supply him and then he wouldn't pay you. And he continued not to pay you till you went bust. And then he'd buy you off the administrator or the receiver because it was a good business practice. He wasn't worried that people lost their jobs. I mean, I'm, ju I'm just going to it's check my insurance seen. policy. <laughs> well, well, it shows you. I mean, and the other thing is, is that this starts at the top. The government this year will borrow something like four hundred billion pounds. Much of that it can eventually cancel out. Corporates, you know, we're seeing it this week with retailers running up vast amounts of debt, which will be cancelled out when they go bust. When you're a private citizen and you're in debt. They pursue you up every alleyway they can. And it's only when you either make yourself bankrupt, which has a prolonged effect for many, many years, that you escape it. I mean, it seems to me that the richer you are, the bigger you are, the easier you get it. And the, the difficulty is, you know, right at the end of that supply chain, the, the impact, you know, as we all know here and lots of listeners will relate to, I'm sure, um, the impact is human. It's a, it's a human toll that it takes. And so, uh, you know, just going back to, to this new research, 39% um, told us their relationships had been affected because of the impact of COVID-19 on uh, their business. 43% are losing sleep. You know, the, the mental health and well-being impacts are enormous. And that's something we're very concerned about at Business Health. Well, on that point, Matt, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the toll is human, and Larry Williams knows what that uh, human toll can be. She runs an events company near Blackpool called Grazity. Um, Larry, I think your business is okay for the moment, but you certainly have been there in the past where it's been really tough. Um, Liz, thanks for letting me come on the uh, podcast. Uh, my, my business actually isn't okay. Um, I, I am literally on universal credit using the food bank. Um, I, I've been like that for three years. Um, I, I had a business three years ago, um, which I'd had for 12 years with an ex-partner. And um, due to sabotage, I was forced into a corner and having to liquidate. Um, and then something happened and it was bought back, like you said, uh, Mickey bought back cheap from the liquidator. Um, now we had personal guarantees on all our loans. We were an audio visual company. Um, equipment for audio visual supply is very expensive. Um, the banks didn't help us when we wanted um, any help with overdrafts, but they very happy to give us factoring, which basically screwed us for all the years we had factoring. Um, and when I liquidated, um, it was actually one of the factoring companies that we had was trying to push me into bankruptcy. Um, another company that had rung up, um, I think 12 months before saying, oh, we have this fantastic scheme of finance. It's like a little overdraft. You don't have to use it, but if you want to use it, it's there. 10 grand for a business that was turning over quite a bit of money. Uh, they were the ones that went for my jugular and took me to court for a possession order on my home. Um, we were a limited company. There was, there was no protection for me and my daughter when the company got liquidated because of the personal guarantees. 
And um, I've noticed actually with COVID, the government have changed the stipulation so that personal guarantees, I think they've, they've increased the limit to 250,000. Anything under that, I think people can't touch. Um, but I, I have had the, the worst three years of my life because of debt to the point of, and I will say it because I, I know there's a lot of people that have taken their lives recently and people are contemplating it. Um, it pushes you to the point where you literally don't want to wake up because you cannot make it go away. And when these companies are hounding you for money uh, and they, they literally want their money. Um, my situation was I was left with about 140,000 on joint um, and several uh, debt on personal guarantees that had been done by the directors. Um, my ex went bankrupt, left it all on my shoulders. Um, and at the time he knew that I couldn't go bankrupt because um, my mum, before she died in 2014, had put the family home into trust for me and my daughter, knowing that they, they basically worked in education. Um, the only thing they had to leave me was the house that they'd bought and paid for and worked hard for. Um, my dad is 84 now, so what? going back the last three years, 81, when it, this all started. Um, so he'd been living in the home in the trust. We had no issues whatsoever. As soon as things happened with the business, because of my ex's behaviour, um, I was left in a situation with 140 grand. The potential of my 81-year-old father being thrown out on the street because they would have taken that house if I'd have been made bankrupt. They would have taken my home, which had my, uh, well, nine-year-old daughter in it at the time. So we would have lost two houses, even though the debt was 140. I was told by the company that was trying to get me into, into an IVA that the debt was so high that no company dealing with insolvency would leave it. They would actually wait for the money and rack up the interest and take all of it. Um, Matt, I know from your report that Larry's story is certainly not one single story of that sort Larry it is absolutely heartrending to think what you've gone through um, Matt's report does actually describe some of the cases uh, that you you know that you have been talking about Matt you know you can't advise Larry here and now obviously um, business deadline will do their best to help but does there you know are there cases like that out there that are just simply insoluble well, I mean, I think our business deadline advisors, you know, hear that stories like Lowry's uh, day in, day out. And um, it, some are extremely difficult. Others are more easy to resolve. And um, the key thing is, you know, uh, that there are options. There is advice. There is free advice from business deadline. And we'd really encourage anybody listening in that situation to, to contact us as soon as possible. But ultimately, you know, free debt advice uh, in the framework that we currently have isn't going to be enough. There needs to be more support. There needs to be more government support. And that's another uh, issue that we, we've touched on in this new research, which is that, you know, it, 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 it's sort of, um, you can't but uh, acknowledge the, the, the fact that the support that's been rolled out for self-employed people is without precedent. It's enormous in scale. It's very expensive, but many, many people have been excluded from that support. And that's a big problem. Um, even those who have received support, um, you know, nobody should, um, no, no policymaker and nobody, nobody full stop should take away the view that uh, that's enough. It's a temporary stopgap. It, it put a, puts a kind of nation in a bit of a stasis 
uh, effect. We actually saw demand for our uh, debt advice fall, uh, like all debt advice charities in the wake of the pandemic. It's this status effect. It's kicking the problem down the road. And actually, there needs to be a, a, a joined up strategy to help self-employed people recover. Um, I want to come on to that. And I know that uh, Lowry is involved with a group called Excluded that deals with just simply this. But Matt, these are people's uh, there are big mental health issues coming through here. Now, um, Lowry has been describing exactly a situation which would have brought many people to uh, look for mental health help. And I just mentioned that the Samaritans helpline is 116123, and that's free from any phone. Um, we will put, there are details of uh, various sources of mental health uh, support on the Back in Business website. But are you seeing a lot of people who come to Business Deadline with mental health issues as well as business issues? Yes, we are. Uh, we always have. Um, personal financial difficulty and mental health issues are, are two sides of the same coin for uh, a very significant number of the people that we help. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking to my colleagues who are on the front line giving advice at business deadline, that is getting worse uh, in, the, in the aftermath of COVID-19. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, you're right to highlight the Samaritans. There's lots of other support. And one of the things that we're working very hard to do is to make sure that our debt advice is as joined up as possible with um, mental health uh, services so that we can make sure that uh, anybody in that situation just get the help they need because you you can't solve one without the other. Lowry Excluded is the campaign for those people who have been excluded from various sources of uh, financial help from the government. Um, give us a picture. What 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 are numbers are we talking about there? At the moment, um, three million people have had no help since March. Um, and when, when you say no help, there are those that haven't been able to get universal credit, haven't been able to get on the SEIS scheme. They've had, um, they've literally not been able to get loans. They haven't been able to access anything at all. They are well, millions of people um, at the moment who have no money, no money for food. This is, this is what we're talking about. They're saying about that you're talking about the household, business and household business and, and, and personal life when you're running your business you pay yourself from your business to your family that's what pays your household bills and keeps your family going that's the reason you do it okay I heard a story the other day um on one of the uh the the, the zooms with the the metro mayors there was a lady there who actually said her 14 year old daughter is so worried that um they are going to lose their home and they have no money she has actually started to starve herself and not eat every other day. Okay. There's another gentleman on the excluded who was a chef who moved. Um, he literally has been eating every other couple of days because he's had no food. He's had to move back to his parents. Um, another lady, um, she's literally sold a home before she moved. She's lost it. As a working, hardworking adult, going back to live with your parents when you're 40, 50, because you've got no other option. Um, for those that have got the option to go back to parents, um, you know, even in my own circumstances, I use the food bank because I know it's there. 
um, my 84 year old dad on his pension. When I do an order for him to Morrison's, I do one for myself, but I'm trying not to bleed his pension because as my dad says at 84, there is no one to help him if anything goes wrong. He literally has his pension. We've given everything up in our in the home because they've my dad's had to take the equity out of the house to pay all my debts off. So you know, there's people with no access to finance. People are terrified and frightened. It's just awful, and it's um, affecting and it's affecting the children as well. And this is what nobody's nobody from government. Well, they're obviously the MPs that are fighting and 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 disagreeing with what the, the you know the top's doing. It, it, it's it's absolutely it's affecting the children now. And that's not acceptable. Um, Simon and Declan, I mean, do you think government's not hearing or just doesn't get the fact that there are people excluded to the point of having to use food banks? Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I suspect they do know what's going on. But, um, you know, government can only do so much. I mean, it's... It's, it's not a bottomless pit um, and they have priorities and I, and you know, uh, you know, they, they, they are putting the money where they think it should go. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I would need to know more clearly what sort of help people wanted before you could say whether government can respond to this. But, you know, I can't believe for a moment they don't know stories like Laurie's saying, you know, they're getting this information. Well, certainly MPs on the, you know, in their constituencies do. They will, yeah. And Declan, when you and I talked to Darren Jones, I think he was fully aware of this. Um, is, there, is there more they should be doing, could be doing? The Chancellor's line when he's asked about this has been that... Um, that the welfare system as it exists is the safety net that people should fall into. And the government says it's increased uh, certain uh, funding for certain benefits and certain uh, payments. And it's shortened the uh, sort, of, sort of the bureaucracy that was around universal credit as well. But even from, from its launch to the present day, universal credit has been dogged by some pretty severe criticisms. And you got the sense all the way along that there was a disconnect, there was a gap of understanding that policymakers, the people who make the policy and the people who implement the policy were saying, it's all fine. You get your money paid uh, after a four week, five week wait. But if you're absolutely desperately dependent on the last five pounds in your pocket, a month's wait may as well be an eternity. And that gap in understanding seems to have dogged this particular thing. I think the government went for the, the law of big numbers when it rolled out the assistance uh, for uh, economic assistance under coronavirus. It first of all dealt with people in regular employment in businesses that were having to close. And that was a big chunk of people. What is that, about 20, 23 million people? Furlough scheme, sorted done then the next block of numbers done uh, many but not all freelancers and that was a block of about five or six million people sorted done and then they stopped and there's been a what feels like a, a, an intentional deafness 
since then to the campaigning by organisations like Excluded, but also the freelance organisation IPSI and other bodies that have spoken out on this, uh, that there are too many people who have fallen through the cracks. And the Treasury answer always defaults back to, well, it's only the wealthiest freelancers. They should have been saving in the past. They should have been making their own um, their own provision for it. Or the insidious suggestion hint that's always dropped in, well, people who work for themselves, a lot of them are doing it to avoid tax and now they're reaping what they sowed. That Simon has got to be part of the problem. Yes, yes is a treasury view of the world. And um, I do think that a lot of uh, the higher end um, self-employed people are uh, in, in, in a position that the treasury believes is a tax uh, dodging position. And, um, you know, you see it all around IR35 and other things. Um, the treasury just is not willing to believe that these people are genuinely paying a fair amount of tax. Um, but, you know, I would also say that government is about priorities, and I think government may well think overall that the priority are the people who are in, 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 in employment, who are paying tax, national insurance, etc., and, and, and probably groups of the employed, like the under 50-year-olds, are more of a priority than the older people. You know, it's all about this sort of stuff as well. And, you know, we are living through very bad times, and there is going to be losers, Mark. Declan, Declan I, get, I get the impression that this is just the start. You know, what we've been hearing today, as depressing as it is, um, there's a lot worse to come because part of the government, if you ask the government, the government will say, look, we've been providing support. Um, we, we've let you have a, a VAT holiday. Um, we've let you have a, a rent a grant, a rates grant. But the point is a lot of that money still has to be paid back in the new year. So a lot of businesses, a lot of freelancers are going to be paying double bubble. I, I can't help thinking there's, there's a, a catastrophe waiting to happen. And Mickey, add into that uh, the people, the freelancers who had put their money aside to pay their tax and have now had to use that to live on. Yeah. That, you know, that element of it must be extremely worrying. There were some figures out this week that showed, you know, there are many, many thousands of people in that position. Sorry, Declan. Yeah. I was going to say, it, there's short-term, medium-term, long-term. Short-term is people who are in crisis right now, as Laurie has described and as Matt has described as well. Medium-term, uh, you've got the uh, repayment of debts that companies have built up, uh, both big corporates and small businesses, and sole traders and directors who've built up private debts in their personal finances in a desperate attempt to keep their businesses going. At some point, uh, businesses have to recover strongly enough to be able to repay those debts. And that's a couple of years off at the most generous estimates. And then long term, and it comes back again to this treasury attitude uh, towards self-employed and people who work for themselves. This is the future of work. This is where the growth is going to be in the future. This is where the work is going to be in the future. The Treasury view is still predicated on that 60s idea that people do a nine to five job in great big factory sheds doing the same thing day in, day out with regular payments that can be taxed simply. The gig economy is where the I'm, growth is. I'm and teaching the tax anything system, I eat in these days. Yeah, and the tax system is just not fit for purpose. Okay, I'm going to send this podcast to the Treasury. Yes. Matt, Matt, um, 
two things there. Universal credit. Do you honestly think that people applying for universal credit ever realized previously how little they were going to get? Um, so as a safety net, does it really work? Is it sufficient? And given this storm, this perfect storm of debt that Declan has just uh, described, how long is it going to be before we do recover from this kind of debt? And Lowry's desperate to get in. Sorry, like quickly, Lowry, before <laughs> Matt gets a chance to answer. Universal credit. I mean, I have to say, I'm one of these that actually, I actually like the system. It's, it's never let me down. Apart from it's not enough money to live on. Okay. And what you've got at the moment is, is, is uh, just even from my own experience. Okay. I get 600 pound a month. That's it. I get some child maintenance off my ex because he's forced to because of the child maintenance service and I get um, child benefit. The, yeah. Child benefit. Okay. So on, a, on the average household for majority of us, well, I'll say majority of us, you're thinking that you, you know, your average household bills to, to run a house, to pay for food, 1800 two grand a month majority of us with mortgages of a of a, a smaller house okay so you're immediately on what 600 pound so that that's for the majority of people how are they supposed to pay their mortgages there's no mortgage help if you rent you get help from the government to pay a landlord a private landlord okay um it, it's the, the whole system's a shambles absolute shambles it's the amount it's the money and at the moment you've got all these people with nothing sat at home with no money therefore they're not spending because they can't and that's a knock-on effect on the economy if people were given well, money now yeah if people were given money now two grand you're making us sit at home and not work you are making us not work and, and you want us to stay at home and protect the nation you give us all two grand in the house pay the house bills and everybody will shop online because they actually don't have to worry. It, it, it's an easy answer um, because then those companies in six months time will be able to go back to work once the vaccine's uh, up and running. And those people will still have people working for them and the economy will then build from them. Easy. It's, it, it's, it's no brainer. I'm definitely sending this to the Treasury. Matt. So it's interesting to hear from Larry right at the start there, um, the universal credit system, your experience of the system. Uh, and uh, being positive, apart from the fact it's not enough money. And that is uh, a great way of putting it. Uh, and actually, it's an unpopular opinion, but uh, universal credit as a system has actually stood up pretty well during this crisis, uh, better than most people were expecting. And certainly, you know, there's lots of evidence to suggest better than the previous legacy welfare system would have stood up. It wouldn't have dealt with the scale of claims. And you, you asked, Liz, um, you know, uh, would, are people finding themselves surprised at how little support is available. And I think that speaks right to a key feature of, of 2020 and 2021 and 2022 and go on and so on, is that a whole new cohort of people are gonna be coming into universal credit. And you're right, I think they will be uh, shocked and surprised at how little uh, support there is. The government has increased this uh, 20 pound a week uh, uplift, which was a very, very good move. Uh, and we, we would be in a very difficult, much more difficult situation had they not done that. Um, it absolutely needs to be extended beyond the spring. Um, and th there's also something very uh, specific for, uh, for self-employed people claiming universal credit, which is that previously there was a, a minimum income floor, which is an assumption that if you're self-employed, you earn the equivalent of a minimum wage. And that assumption is, uh, is nonsense in two reasons. First of all, many people don't earn the minimum wage, um, especially when you're starting out in self-employment. But also your, self your income is so 
variable. And so uh, universal credit struggles with that element too. So uh, they have uh, suspended this assumption, this minimum income floor. And one of the things that we have been calling on government to, to do is to, to extend that suspension of this, uh, this uh, very technical point. Um, but basically what that amounts to is giving fairer access to universal credit for the self-employed. And that's going to be really important going forward. And the second part of my question, um, how long before all of this sorts itself out? Put the crystal ball on the table, have a look into it. <laughs> I've, I've worked in debt advice for 10 years, basically since the financial crisis. And in that entire 10, 10 years, we've been dealing with the aftermath of the financial crisis. And this feels like that again, and probably then some. Well, I think uh, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Matt Hartley from Money Advice Trust and Lowry Williams from Grazity. Thank you both very much indeed. Um, I just feel, well, I feel quite depressed really, I think. Um, in let, the me thought let, me cheer, let me cheer, let me cheer you up. The vaccine is coming and this that too, is going to change the game. It will, but it's still going to take several months and I'm really, really concerned for people over the the holiday season because I think that there is what uh, somebody's described the other day as a tsunami of mental health problems coming off the back of all of this and I'm really worried about it and then of course we've got the subject we're going to be talking about next week which is Brexit Oh, yikes. we can't avoid it any longer <laughs> Simon <Yes. laughs> what are we going to be talking about I think we'll be talking about a deal. I'm hearing this morning. Yeah, that, I'm with uh, you, Simon. That that they're very close, and uh, sources in the Spectator who have very oh. close inside information are saying we'll have a deal by Monday. Um, there's some noises off from the French over fishing, but that can be dealt with apparently, and um, um, we could be talking about a deal on Monday. Uh, what that deal is. Uh, Going to look like and what it's going to be like for British business. Well, I can't tell you that yet. So actually, what we're talking about is a deal today because the podcast goes out today. Indeed, <laughs> and Matt's that's research correct. Is today. So yes, absolutely. We'll be having a deal after this podcast. We will be hearing about a deal. <laughs> and of course, the Dexter, Spectator has good Dexter sources. Mickey, it used to employ course. the Prime Minister. The big campaign now is to save sausages in Northern Ireland because <laughs> Northern Ireland remains under the European Single Market and Customs Union rules. And we, that means that British supermarkets selling stuff. I thought most of the sausages stuff, from Northern Ireland were over Shipping in stuff to their uh, supermarkets in Northern Ireland uh, have to make sure they comply with European rules. But this could mean a decent chunk of new business for local suppliers like Doherty's and Cookstown. Well, as we mentioned, we gave them a plug last week as well. Oh, we're giving yes. them another plug this week because they sizzle. Yes. Sponsorship, please. Oh, you well, don't put a sock in it. Oh, and look who's come to join us. Oh. 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 Simon's dog, for those of you who can't see. Baxter. Yeah. <laughs> Baxter's come to join us. Yeah. Oh, uh, and Barney's oh, here. Shush. Yeah. Okay. You can't leave one out, Simon. You have oh, come to on. You got lift them both. Bench Shut up, Barney. Bench lift what? them. What? <laughs> oh, there's tension. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. While so, while Simon sorts out the dogs. <laughs> Can they say sausages? <laughs> no, I haven't thought on that yet. <laughs> 
uh, I'll just say thank you to <laughs> to Matt and Lowry again, to Declan, uh, Simon, Mickey. Uh, we'll see each other again next week. And um, of course, thank you very much to Harry and to George who are sorting everything out in the background. Uh, next week, as, you, as we've said, we're talking about Brexit. Uh, you can hear our conversation with Darren Jones, MP, and all the other conversations and interviews and podcasts on our website. That's backinbusiness.org.uk. If you want to take part or you want to comment, tell us your experiences, then email us at contact us at backinbusiness.org.uk. Find us on LinkedIn and Twitter at business underscore backin. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>